They call Nat Gas the Widowmaker, but gold, I mean, gold, I actually don't mind gold at all here at 1800 bucks. Again, not financial advice. Someone put a comment on YouTube. Now is a terrible time to buy Cameco. I'm not recommending anybody buy Cameco. Okay. I will mention it is up. I was like, what is it? It's up. It is up actually a few percent. Let's look, look at the last week. These are not recommendations. I was thinking out loud. Yeah, you're up 5% on your Cameco as a matter of fact, but I could eat my words very quickly. These are not recommendations. Let me be very, very clear on that. They are just musings on the market, which inevitably will have, oh, that looks good and that doesn't look so great. Uh, again, not recommendations. Nickel is kind of a big standout here. Uh, it is back down at $12.44 after peaking out in our numbers, in our weekly numbers, at $21.87. So that was two and a half months ago. So it continues to kind of pull back its gains. I mean, it was a weird week. I mean, I think people are really starting to get worried, at least they were until a couple of days ago, about recession. You saw copper. Copper hit on my little internet chart here. Thank you, tradingeconomics.com. Copper hit $4.08 on May 12th. So today is May 17th. So last week, copper hit $4.08. It hasn't been that low since, I mean, it hit $4.07, September 30th, 2021. So what is going on? I thought we were in a super cycle. It looks to me as if, you know, and pick your reason, these could be just technical, like the Elliott way of people say, the news is inconsequential, according to some people. I'm sympathetic, you know, like I... The longer I pay attention to these markets, the more I take these technical guys seriously because they seem to be actually, you know, you look at the Gareth Soloways, Elliott Wave, I don't know, I, uh, I'm not quite as impressed by, but they still seem to, it, it's still impressive, generally speaking. They seem to be right more than they're wrong, let's put it that way, maybe by one or two percent. But yeah, I, I think we have recession fears here while energy continues to move higher. Now, here's a chart that nobody's talking about, coal. Coal, so that peaked out in March. Again, like, what is that? A month and a half to two months ago. March 9th, it was at $416 per ton. And now it's at 414 So it looks like it's about to just break through there. Oil has snuck back up. If we look at oil, $114 a barrel for both West Texas and Brent crude. They're the same price. So oil is sneaking back up. Our 10-year U.S. Treasury bond is back below 3% at 2.922. So the U.S. 10-year seems to be you know, torn between trying to go higher to make up for inflation. In other words, if you're going to lend money to the government for 10 years, you may want more than 2.9% if we have an 8% inflation print. However, when nothing is going up and everybody is worried about recession, people pile into bonds, bringing down the yield because the more that people want them, the less that they have to give as a yield. So that is interesting. Uranium also kind of going down. Now, interestingly, Cameco is up a little bit, just nudged a little bit higher after a pretty steep decline, while uranium seems to have 
not recovered in the same way. It's at $49 according to trading economics. So pretty interesting sort of situation. I guess this is the stagflation that people are worried about, this like expensive energy and low growth, even negative growth. So I think it's just a confusing market for everybody. And before I forget, as I always do, hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. We have an excellent show for you today. We have an interview with Northern Miner senior reporter Henry Lazenby, and he went to mining in Daba, which is one of the main mining conferences in the world in South Africa. And what's kind of cool about that is Henry is from South Africa. So he is familiar with government down there and what it's like, and he talks about what it's like to even just take the train, which is quite interesting. And so he was able to contrast really the speeches of the leaders at this conference versus the reality of, say, taking a train through South Africa, which he said was fairly dilapidated. So this incongruence between the story and the reality, it's Shakespearean in nature, appearance and reality, platonic. So we have that coming up, a very interesting interview. And we also have a CEO spotlight with Stepgold Executive Vice President Anil Varash. And there we hear about Mongolia. So it's the global episode here. And also coming up, it's only a week away now, is the Global Mining Symposium. And so if you want to register for that, just go to events.northernminer.com. Dot com and you can participate and you can ask questions. Just click on the register today button. And so that is always an exciting event. You can interact live with the speakers. And also coming up on June 8th, which is two weeks later, we have a new Mining Legends speaker series with Pierre Lassonde, and that will take place June 8th, 2022 at 10.30 a.m. at One King West Hotel, Toronto. And you can reserve your tickets now they are $85 and they continue to move. So last time they sold out, do not wait to the last minute because you will miss out. It features Pierre Lassonde and Ashley Kerwin, and you also get a gourmet lunch. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to Anil Varash, Executive Vice President of Stepgold. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome Anil Varach, Executive Vice President of Stepgold. Anil, Welcome to the Northern Miner CEO Spotlight. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. I was on your website, and we were discussing beforehand, and I see you have projects in Mongolia. And, you know, we don't often talk about Mongolia, so I thought maybe we could begin there. How are things in Mongolia? What is it like? Tell us what you're up to in Mongolia. Absolutely. So for those who are new to maybe Mongolia as a jurisdiction, it's a functional democracy, a former Soviet satellite country that gained independence in the early 90s and has been functional every four years of parliamentary election, just like Canada, I guess. A very similar process has always worked and in what we consider one of the best democracies coming out of the, the former Soviet countries there. So it's, it's, it's a great place to do business. Our team has actually worked in Mongolia since 2009, having already built one successful company and sold that for half a billion cash. So we know how to build and operate. And what's most important in how we operate is, you know, we are as local as possible, as you should be in any jurisdiction. So we consider ourselves a Mongolian 
company listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Our CEO is Mongolian, half our board are Mongolian, and most importantly, 99% of our staff in country are Mongolian. And what this obviously does is allow you to, to gain support locally, provincially, federally. But also in, in times like a pandemic that we've been you know, going through for the last few years, you can still continue to operate. For almost 18 months, you couldn't get into the country if you tried. So that's the importance of also having a local team that can continue to operate in, in circumstances like now. Now, Mongolia is home to world-class assets, discoveries, and mines. So the Oyotogo mine, discovered in the 2000s by Robert Friedland, now operated by Rio Tinto, is one of the top copper mines in the world. I think it'll be the number three or four copper mine in the world. So you can discover world-class assets and build them and operate them. Just this year, Rio Tinto has essentially doubled down in country by forgiving the, the government's debt of about $2.5 billion, offering to buy out the, the, the other shareholder, Turquoise, uh, Hill for another 2.7 billion in their associated capex for the expansion. So it's about a seven and a half billion dollar commitment this year alone from a super major, right? This is the second biggest diversified miner in the world. So certainly a vote of confidence for the country. You have a supportive government, and, and we're you know we're kind of a poster child for that that has given us capital. So in 2016, when we started this company, the New People's Party they won a major majority. They won the second term in 2020, and they have been saying and doing all the right things. So they, they haven't asked for more from us. In fact, they've given us capital. And just about six months ago, when we announced our feasibility study into our expansion project, the Bank of Mongolia sponsored 60 million U.S. of debt. So that's a government that's actually giving us capital to grow and not asking for more. You know, so, you know, we're paying our royalties, we're taxpayers. So very supportive government, resource-rich country that's relatively underexplored. And certainly we have a, an edge because we know how to do things properly. And we've already built our first mine in the gold space here, and that's already in production. That is so interesting, because I thought it was, you know, close to China and all that. So it's, but you're right. I mean, when you talk about Rio Tinto and their huge commitments there. So very interesting. Now, as far as I understand, you have two projects in Mongolia. Are they both gold projects? And, and tell us about what you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, they are both precious metals projects. You know, Step Gold was set up to be the premier precious metals company in Mongolia solely focused for now in Mongolia. So our, our flagship project is the ATO project that we bought from Sentara Gold for 20 million US back in 2017. They'd spent 30 million US on this project, drilled 67,000 meters, 20,000 meters of trenching. But most importantly, they got a fully licensed and permitted for our phase one, this is our heat bleach project that's now in production, but also our phase two expansion, which allows us to be permitted for a, a tailing facility uh, flotation circuit and plant, CIL plant or CIP plant. So a fully permitted build-ready project that we took a phased approach to help de-risk the company and the asset. By putting the heat bleach in production, it generates a lot of cash flow, about $700 all-in cost for the next couple of years that we can use to fund the growth of our business. So that's the ATO project where we've managed to actually double the resources, about 1.2 million ounces when we bought it, which included 210,000 ounces of reserves. Today, we're closer to 2.5 million ounces approximately on a gold equivalent basis which includes 1.6 million ounces of reserves on a gold equipment basis. So we've had some significant wins in very short order while building the, the smaller operation at, at surface that generates a lot of cash flow. And it's still open. We've only drilled to about 400 meters at depth. So this is a, a project we think will continue to grow, but today has about 12 and a half years of mine life ahead of it. Two years or so of, of the oxide mine at about 50,000 ounces at about $700 all in cost. And then we double our production profile in about two years to 100,000 ounces with another 10 and a half years of mine life already permitted Expansion already started, and that will be about $850 all in costs, where we think we'll bring that closer to the 700s by the time we bring it online. So a very exciting starter project that we've had some wins. We're now 
uh, I guess, more real in, in the world, having more than 10-year mine life and having a kind of 100,000 ounces production profile in short order. And we still have a lot of exploration potential on this project. And our second project is an undrilled license in the southwest of the country, never been drilled. We're the first owners, and we're going to start drilling, we think, this month. So it's very exciting, 14,400 hectare exploration license that's never been drilled, but has been drilled all around. So what that's what makes it more exciting is that we, you know, our peer uh, Erdine Resources, also in the country, has had some success, has about a million ounces to the adjoining licenses to the north and south, and we get to finally drill the license in the middle. So, you know, a lot to offer between these two projects. The ATO is obviously cash flowing today, so no need for equity raise in, the, in this turbulent market or volatile market that funds the growth of our company. We have support of government, so we already have debt for that phase two expansion. Most of it lined up today. We'll double our production profile in the next two years, and then we still have expiration on both properties. So it's a pretty action-packed story that uh, Step Gold offers here with cash flow, expansion, and still expiration sizzle, should we call it, uh, that any Explore Co. offers on both of our properties. And I guess in a way, we're just getting started. It sounds like a very attractive project. I mean, when you have cash flow, so you don't need to raise funds to explore for, say, this. You, you have one producing mine. This is, you called it the ATO project? Yeah, is that ATO, correct? Alton Saganovu, which means White Golden Hill. Okay. And it's bringing in cash and profit. It's profitable. And you're correct. doing it $700 an ounce. Yep. Right. So you, all those profits you can put into back into the business and explore uh, for the second project. So what do you hope to find, say, at, say, the ATO project? And what's the second project called again? The second project is the Udam Hundi project, or UK for short. Not in UK, mm -hmm. it's, it's the short for Udam Hundi. This year, I think we'll drill about 20,000 meters between both the projects. So this is the maiden drilling on the UK project. 10,000 meters fully funded from our cash flow, which is honestly only about a million and a half dollars spend US. And we're, we're looking to, you know, to net about 25 million US of cash this year just on our oxide mine production. So obviously the funding is there. So there we hope to obviously drill for the first time. We've had some uh, significant results at surface through trenching and soil sampling, one and a half grams gold, 450 grams silver. So, and we know our neighbors have had some tremendous success with their discoveries and their million ounces that surround us. So we obviously want to show that there's that same potential on our project. We do think it could be another production center in the future years. Obviously, a lot more work to do over the next two, three years, but we can continue to move that forward and get it to a, you know, indicative resource, you know, over the next two, three years, move that forward to a, a mining license. And that could be our step three, you know, we're in step one, moving to step two, and then a, a third step, you know, potentially build a mine down here. So that's the UK project. At the ATO project, We've already put out a feasibility study to produce gold, silver, and lead and zinc as well. So there are some base metals. So that already in the feasibility study, we've already put out the process for the flotation plants to process that. So now we want to continue to grow the resource there. Today, it's already 10 and a half years mine life. We think we can continue to increase that. There's a lot of room to grow at depth, and still we still haven't really stepped out along this trend here. So if you go up north in Russia, just about 150 kilometers from where we are, there's similar deposits that are 5 million plus, 10 million plus ounces and in production. So we think the scale potential exists, but we're already at a, at a point where we can bring that phase two online, and then your cash flow is going to be more than our current market cap today. You can reinvest that cash flow into building the next production center, to reinvesting in further exploration. There's new discoveries to be made in country, and there's still more acquisitions for us to make in country. It's going to be quite a, a next step here. It's going to be much bigger than the first one. But a lot of heavy lifting has been completed by getting the first mine up and running, become a taxpayer, a royalty payer 
an employer in country, a producer. Well, it's so important to do that these days. It all sounds very promising, frankly. What I also like about the project is it's like you guys have done something. Like it's not just an idea on a piece of paper. Like you actually have a functioning mine. And not only do you have a functioning mine, it's profitable. Yeah, and it's full of promise. And as you say, an underexplored country. I'm selling it for you, Anil. So <laughs> tell us, so if people want to find out more about the project, what should they do? I guess stepgold.com and Absolutely. what else should they do? Yeah, stepgold.com. We have lots of videos. You can see and touch and feel the actual operation, see interviews from our staff. You know, when we started this, there was no staff. There's three people with an idea and was, we're on the Mongolian step and nothing was there. Now we have 250 mm -hmm. full-time employees and we're going to double that in the next two years. So go to our website. Uh, we do have research coverage from a few banks. Uh, Stifle GMP covers us with a, a target that's multiples of overtrading. Hanum Partners out of UK cover us. Haywood Securities cover us. And then on the paid research side, we also have fundamental research. So that's accessible to investors. Unfortunately, the banks are only accessible to institutional investors. And then last but not least, please reach out to us directly. I'm always accessible. I speak to all investors of any size, and we're always available. You can email me at anil at stepgold.com. Uh, A-N-E-E-L at stepgold.com. It's on the website as well, and I'm happy to schedule a meeting and, and follow-up call with any investor. Very impressive. Well, Anil Varash, Executive Vice President of Stepgold, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you so much for having me. And turning to the website, we have a couple of stories here. Uh, Hud Bay Minerals has suffered a major legal setback with Rosemont. Now, the story goes into the weeds a little bit. So it's kind of, a, I was reading the story and it's a little hard to do over the radio, but the, now, as far as I remember, Rosemont was once owned by Augusta Resource, not Augusta Resources, but Augusta Resource. And they bought it a few years ago. And now they're having issues after a district court of Arizona in 2019 ruled that the U.S. Forest Service relied on incorrect assumptions regarding its legal authority and the validity of Rosemont's unpatented mining claims in issuing the final environmental impact statement. So as you can see, there's a lot in there. The point being, as far as I understand the story, the U.S. Forest Service had basically approved it, and the District Court of Arizona ruled that the U.S. Forest Service was wrong and that the mine could not go ahead Hud Bay appealed, and they lost that appeal. And the issue is the waste of the mine. And the judge said, quote, when operations cease after 20 to 25 years, waste rock on the 2,447 acres would be 700 feet deep and would occupy the land in perpetuity. So Hud Bay put out a press release saying that they would review the decision and that it would continue to pursue its alternative plan to advance the adjacent Copper World project. So a bit of a muddled situation over there, but it looks terrible for Hud Bay right now because if a court rules against your mine and then you appeal and you lose that, I mean, I don't know where that leaves you legally. And on that theme, we have another rejection. Review board rejects Baffinland expansion plans in Nunavut. So of course, this is in Canada. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi. And it says here, Baffinland Iron Mine's proposed expansion of its Mary River iron ore operation in Nunavut has suffered a major blow after a review board advised against the project on environmental grounds. So, so get this, after four years of consultations and deliberations, the Nunavut Impact Review Board, NIRB, last week rejected the miners' request to more than double output to 12 million tons a year. 
eventually reaching 30 million tons annually. The board cited, quote, significant adverse ecosystemic effects, end quote, on marine mammals such as narwhals, fish, caribou, and other wildlife, which in turn could harm Inuit culture as the main reason for the decision. The company said it was both surprised and disappointed by the board's decision. Quote, our proposal, based on years of in-depth study and detailed scientific analysis, and has considerable local support based on years of consultation with Inuit and local communities. Chief Executive Officer Brian Penny said in the statement, quote, we will be asking the federal government to consider all the evidence and input and to approve the application with fair and reasonable conditions. Dan Vandal, the federal Northern Affairs Minister, has 90 days to either side with the review board or with the mining company, in which steel giant ArcelorMittal has a 28% stake. The rest of Baffin Island is held by Nunavut Iron Ore Inc., which is controlled by a Texas-based private equity firm called the Energy and Minerals Group. Mary River, considered one of the world's richest iron ore deposits, opened in 2015 and ships about 6 million tons of ore a year. If the expansion is approved, Baffin Island would send about 12 million tons of the 30 million tons via the North Railway to Milne Port. It also plans a second railway to Steensby Port, from which it intends to ship an additional 18 million tons of ore a year. Current shipping volumes have already had a, quote, devastating impact on the area's narwhal population. The world's densest vice chairperson of the Mittimetallic Hunters and Trappers organization, Inuki Unwarak, said in an email statement, Narwhals are a type of whale with a long spear-like tusk that protrudes from its head. And last year, a group of hunters from Arctic Bay and Pond Inlet blocked access to the mine in protest for the company's icebreaking practices due to their negative impacts on narwhals. So, you know, it's the same old story. Whatever side you find yourself on, it's the same story. Interestingly, Elemental shareholders reject Gold Royalty's hostile takeover bid. It's by Naimul Karim. Gold Royalties failed to acquire Elemental Royalties as its all-share hostile takeover bid expired on May 12th, bringing an end to a saga that began in October. Less than 5% of its shares were tendered to the bid, Elemental said, adding that Gold Royalty had failed to meet the statutory minimum tender condition of more than 50%. Quote, this hostile bid has been an unfortunate and unnecessary drain on Elemental Management's time and resources, Elemental CEO Frederick Bell said in a press release. Quote, Elemental shareholders have again overwhelmingly chosen to reject the hostile bid, which was never a compelling proposition and currently represents a material discount to Elemental shareholders, rather than the premium announced by Gold Royalty, end quote. One of the reasons the bid failed was Gold Royalty's, quote, little revenue and a big market cap, one analyst told the Northern Miner following the takeover bid. Quote, Elemental has much more revenue and is smaller. So Elemental and their shareholders didn't see the economic justification for a merger. Well, that's a pretty good reason. The analyst believes Elemental is undervalued, but still reckons that the company should merge to get some scale and market attention. Very interesting. So smaller, but generates more revenue. Nouveau Monde and Mason Graphite set to form joint venture to advance Lac Guerret in Quebec. It's also by Naimul Karim. Nouveau Monde Graphite and Mason Graphite have entered into an option and joint venture agreement to advance Mason Graphite's Lac Guerret project in northeastern Quebec. As part of the deal, Nouveau will have the option to own 51% of the property. If it invests $5 million in Mason Graphite and spends $10 million on advancing the property, it would also be required to co-fund a preliminary economic assessment 
and a bankable feasibility study based on a production scale of at least 250,000 tons per year of graphite concentrate. And we have a quote from Pierre Fitzgibbon, Quebec's Minister of Economy and Innovation, who said in a press release, quote, the partnership announced today has a potential to propel Quebec's graphite industry on the world stage. By combining the strengths of the two most advanced projects in North America, we are solidifying our battery value chain, end quote. So interesting, JV, in Quebec. And finally, we have a new copper ETF in Canada called the Horizons ETF Copper Producers Index, which is set to go live for trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange on May 17th today. It's by Henry Lazenby as well, providing a new option for investors to gain passive exposure to the world's $2 billion plus market cap copper producers. Nicholas Picard, the company's VP, portfolio manager, and options strategist, tells the Northern Miner the, quote, COPP is Canada's first ETF to provide exposure exclusively to companies involved in copper mining. One of the world's oldest industrial metals, copper, continues to become increasingly important to the manufacture of today's infrastructure and technologies, including urban buildings, electronic manufacturing, and particularly as a vital input for electric auto manufacturing and renewable energy expansion. And we have a quote, the index is designed to provide exposure to the performance of companies active in copper ore mining. Constituents will include small, mid, and large capitalization companies listed on North American exchanges. COPP may also invest in companies headquartered outside of North America that have a North American listing, according to Nicholas Picard. Interesting. Some of the positions include Turquoise Hill Resources at 19.5%. First Quantum Minerals at 11%, Southern Copper at 9%, Lundin Mining at 9%, Freeport McMoran at 9%, Capstone Copper at 6.9%, Tech Resources at 7%, and Hudbay Minerals at 6%. So there you have it. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on May 17th, gold is trading at $1,829.52 per ounce. That is $31 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $21.79 per ounce. That is $0.24 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $954.39 per ounce. That is $21 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,029.45 per ounce. That is $112 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.11 per pound. That is $0.17 lower. Aluminum is trading at $1.24 per pound. That is $0.04 lower than last week. Lead is back below a dollar at 94 cents per pound. That is seven cents lower than last week. Nickel is also lower at $12.44 per pound. That is 14 cents lower than last week. And tin is at $15.59 per pound. That is $2.88 lower than last week. And cobalt is down a penny at $36.94 per pound, and zinc is at $1.59 per pound. That is 15 cents lower than last week. What do we see? I don't want to call it the unraveling of the commodities trade, but 
you know, you are seeing numbers we haven't seen in months. You know, again, lead hasn't been below a dollar in like four or five months. We're seeing a bit of a return, frankly, to September 2021 levels in commodities, as we were noting with copper earlier in the program. Nickel is still, you know, maybe 50% higher than it was in September or, you know, whenever that was, maybe double. But still, I mean, nickel was at $21.87 two months ago. Now it's at $12.44. Tin was at $21.47 two and a half months ago. It's at $15.59. So big pullback. Zinc, I mean, it was above $2. It's at $1.59. So big pullback. I think we could say this is recession fears. You know, the Fed has hiked interest rates, okay? I guess that's what happened. I guess we're going to see now how much legs this commodity super cycle really has. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Northern Miner senior reporter Henry Lazenby on mining in Daba in South Africa. He was there. He wrote several articles. I recommend you read them. They are on the Northern Miner website and mining.com. Henry gives a very interesting interview on the conference, on what it's like to be in South Africa, and his general thoughts on mining in Africa in general. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome for the first time, at least while I host the program, Henry Lazenby, senior reporter at the Northern Miner. Henry, welcome to the program. Hi, Adrian. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and in a sense, we could say this meeting is long overdue. And so tell us, you just got back from South Africa, and I believe you're from South Africa. We want to talk about mining in Daba and everything, but before that, just give us a very quick summary of 30-second uh, overview of how you got to where you are right now. So I always say the mining industry kind of picked me. Uh, I'm a journalist by trade. And so in 2010, I got uh, involved with a publication in Johannesburg called Mining Weekly. And they seconded me to Toronto in 2012, and that became permanent. And so hence, I had to learn everything mining, you know, by myself, and uh, also did some courses here and there to kind of just give me the more insight and ability to interpret the general kind of news better. And yeah, so about a year ago now, I moved over from another position to the Northern Miner Group to where I am today, writing for mining.com and the Northern Miner. Awesome. So now you just came from South Africa, so you're probably visiting home, but you also went to this, what looks like a pretty big mining conference. I assume it's one of the biggest in Africa. So tell us about mining in Daba. I have heard of it, but I don't really know too much mm. about it. So tell us about that whole experience and have you been there before? What is it? Mm. Yes. So I as you say, I did uh, take the opportunity to combine some holiday with working, you know, two weeks and incorporating attending the mining in Daba into that. So it was my first time attending the Indaba, but from what I understand, it has been around for about, uh, I'm under correction, I think 25 years already. And it has grown from literally out of nowhere to being one of the usually 
first uh, in the mining year calendar of events, you know, one of the most substantial events. And according to my understanding, there were 6,000 people just now. While that fell in comparison to the size of uh, PDAC, which we've seen attendance soar to 39,000 odd people, I think around 2015, I understand that it has grown to be the second most prominent mining event at this stage. So certainly nothing to be sneezed at. And um, for that reason, I really wanted to get feet on the ground there and see for myself what it's all about. Yeah. And, you know, like with everything going on in the news and with the growing importance, I mean, commodities have always been important, but now politicians seem to care a little more with uh, the prices going up and everything. Uh, everything gets very real very quickly when gas doubles or whatever it's mm. doing now. And here Africa is, you know, and we've been hearing about investments from China for years. So all to say, uh, it seems like a conference like this might take a little more import than it might usually. Like, did you get that sense when you were there? Do you get the sense that there's just a little bit more excitement and energy in the air? Yes. You know, the theme for this year's Indaba was centered around Africa's uh, generational opportunity about how investment now can prepare it to take part in a meaningful way in this new industry 4.0, you know, green energy transition that we are seeing unfolding globally. Africa has this wealth of minerals. I think in one of my articles, I actually labeled it an Aladdin's cave of mineral wealth sitting in Africa. And aside from the sad historical, you know, uh, led legacy kind of infrastructure that, 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 you know, tended to export raw materials by the colonialists directly out to the seaside and, you know, uh, beneficiated somewhere else. The crux that we heard time and again this uh, past week was how Africa can create this downstream vertically integrated business, you know, to regionally cooperate and create batteries on African soil and EVs on African soil using African soil. And that could be an export product that will help it lift the region's, you know, struggling economies. I don't know if I answered your question directly. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect because, yeah, and and that's almost what I would think it would be about, you know, like uh, partly, you know, like I, I would assume it would be about this huge opportunity. What's really interesting about what you say is this idea, which is almost unfortunately a paradigm shift of this idea that Africa can build the batteries, for example, and that they're even talking about that because then you start to think, oh, Africa could become rich and, you know, maybe I'm a little older than you. But that's never really been an image that I grew up with mm. or ever, you know, yes. and, but it's it sounds completely true, though. So maybe dig a little deeper. So, OK, so, yeah, I'm sure they've been told this for the last five or 10 years or they've been discussing this. Now let's dig deeper. So what is mm. being proposed here? Yeah, yeah. So one message that I uh, heard come through very clearly from the African leadership. Now I'm quoting uh, the president of South Africa, the president of Zambia, of Botswana, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. They have all been talking about policy reform. In Zambia, President Hakeinde Hinchilema uh, was talking about the new dawn and uh, the economical restoration taking place, and that skewed squarely on attracting foreign investment 
with mining being that key building block to get the economy going again. And we saw the fruits of that immediately unfold with First Quantum Minerals unveiling a 1.25 billion US dollar investment last week in Zambia, saying they will proceed with expanding some key copper mines there. So this all sounds very great. And for me as an observer, the proof really lies in the pudding. You know, it sounds a little bit like a story we've heard many times over before policy reform, you know, this thing about creating a, a regional, uh, uh, you know, connected infrastructure and a free trade block that will enable the creation of this, you know, vertically integrated green industry. But it really lies in the pudding. And so we're waiting with bated breath, really, to see whether many of these policy reforms will, in fact, materialize. You know, capital is a fickle thing. It's scared uh, of risk. And so Africa, in many view, is a, an extremely risky place. You know, it feels like, you know, rules can get changed on you every odd year for no reason. There's this thing that you rightly mentioned, uh, resource nationalism, that could very well still, you know, change things for, for an investor. And so those are important things that the African leaders will have to really pay close attention to, is to create this stable environment that is conducive to foreign investment coming in and staying in. And so the other thing, of course, is the green transition. Uh, we've heard that Africa has this once in a generational opportunity to basically establish these advanced industries and essentially bypassing much of these basic building blocks that some of the other countries that are developed today, such as the US, uh, many countries in the Europe, European Union, uh, relied upon, you know, this critical building block of burning fossil fuels. And so Africa at this stage could, in fact, bypass that in many instances and just directly focus on creating renewable, sustainable energy sources with which to service this burgeoning new green energy and metals industry. So there's a lot to unpack there. Back to this governance issue. So when did you move from South Africa? Like, so what I like is you kind of grew up there, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Like you, you said 2012, I think, right? Correct. So you yes. spent a lot of time in, in South Africa. So what's your perception? I mean, you follow the news quite closely. Mm. You're a reporter. Do you think that the governance in Africa is ready to make, you know, can provide that stability that you are discussing? Or is the jury mm. still out? And maybe stuff like this first quantum is going to be, okay, here we go. Let's mm. see. Mm. You know what? Uh, thank you very much for that question. It allows me to actually elaborate on a point I really wanted to make. And so I obviously did a bit of traveling around South Africa as well, specifically. And when you hear these kind of uh, beautiful words coming from government, you know, it's really great. But then when you get into your car and you physically drive on these roads, you know, in remote parts of like the free state, and, and you realize that the conditions on the ground really speak of something else, you know, a, a sinister monster, you know, somewhere. And I'm talking about like torrid roads that are disintegrating. They have disintegrated back to dust roads. You know, they're just littered with bottles. And you start realizing that these roads are not conducive for an economy, right? If there were to be a mine somewhere close, you know, they wouldn't be able to use this road. You know, the farmers that we, you know, that you see next to this said road, they won't be able to use this road to export their products, right? So you, you kind of start thinking, you know, okay, what's happening? There's this irony, this contrast. And, and so it must unfortunately be said that corruption, you know, that's the product of corruption. It's just endemic 
from the layperson's point of view in South Africa. You know, when the police, uh, you know, want to inspect your vehicle or something, the chances are 95% they're going to want a bribe from you. You know, that's the reality of doing business there, unfortunately. So I'm kind of dismayed that the leadership, you know, they, they know what words to say to foreign investors. But when you really get your boots on the ground or your, where, where rubber meets the tarmac, you know, it, it's a different story. Another point I want to make is Cape Town's mayor also had a lot to say about uh, the South Africa state failure specifically and how the um, opposition government in the Western Cape province is actively lobbying to devolve federal government functions like control over the commuter train system, you know, um, having their own say about whether uh, renewable power or independent power generators can in fact sell their power back into the grid, you know, and whether there are any kind of incentives for them to do so and to do so quicker. So that was, again, a, a very kind of contrasting um, comment from a leader, the, op the opposition in South Africa, you know, contrasting against this message of, you know, Africa is ready for business. Africa is doing the policy reforms needed and Africa is uh, investing in infrastructure. As an aside, it's it's heartbreaking. I, I took the train from Pretoria down to Cape Town, and it took uh, three nights and four days. And what I saw is a, a railway infrastructure that's absolutely dilapidated. The copper catenary wiring that the electric trains need to operate has been stolen during the COVID lockdowns. It's a crying shame, honestly. Well, that's so interesting. And listening to you speak, it kind of reminds me when I ever talk to people who come from the African continent, they, they always kind of remind me, Adrian, it's a massive place, right? And so you're talking about South Africa, mm. but it sounds like, you know, I just hear the the challenge of the practical challenge of kind of governing today, especially in somewhere where you know that infrastructure isn't already built and you're kind of starting not from scratch but you're starting from halfway let's mm -hmm. say so it just sounds like really tricky so just another kind of big picture question and this is kind of geared towards the continent how optimistic are you then or are you just maybe you've already answered this question but are you optimistic that change can actually happen or if anything's going to work out so you sound pessimistic if anything yeah, and I'm a little bit sad that I'm sounding pessimistic. You know, I would love to really be telling these positive stories. And there certainly are stories. But look, Africa's got this, I'm saying it again, a generational opportunity in front of it where it can make a meaningful contribution to the modern economy. But it's these policy mismatches and across the southern part of the continent and even in the northern parts, you know, there are a few railway lines that literally connect economies with each other they still run from the interior to the sea to export materials. And, and it's not even just a Southern African phenomenon. Uh, you know, it's the entire continent is that way. And something that has to be said also, it's, it's the resource curse. Um, have you heard of that before? Whereas the resource curse really um, entails, you know, th that these countries remain some of the poorest on earth today. And it all comes back to policy and that's all important uh, investment in infrastructure. And rule of law. The rule of law, right. exactly. So two points right. to that is, you know, just from the South African perspective, again, until I think the international community 
doesn't see some prominent uh, former South African leaders uh, being prosecuted to the full extent of the law for purported fraud and state capture, uh, which has now been proven uh, by, you know, a commission of inquiry report just recently as well. You know, I think uh, that capital flight might still be an issue. Uh, it certainly does not create, from my view, that safe space that capital requires to flourish. That being said, the African continent also struggles to spearhead new technologies that really will uh, kickstart this new economy. And it is very much driven in by the private sector. So for instance, Anglo-American Platinum, they launched the largest uh, hydrogen haulage truck, uh, a 300 ton beast. And it, it's only um, exhaust gas is water, water vapor. And so, you know, that's a wonderful project. And the CEO was talking about they've got 400 more of these trucks that they want to convert to uh, hydrogen. And of course, hydrogen, uh, to extract energy from that, you cannot uh, do that without having platinum. And so that presents another massive opportunity to South Africa, who really has all these platinum group metal resources. And uh, the only country next to it is perhaps Russia. And now Russia has kind of gone and shot itself in the foot. So nobody will buy it from them. So just to sketch this enormous opportunity in front of uh, the country, but those uh, midstream beneficiation potential is not yet being used. So, so the point is really private industry is spearheading technological advancement despite you know, what the government policy really is. And I think that goes, uh, you know, a little bit further as well to the rest of Africa in many instances as well. In the DRC, Ivanhoe Mines is uh, restoring hydropower generation for them to create, uh, you know, green copper metal from the giant uh, uh, Kakula uh, mine that's just, uh, you know, starting to really ramp up and get into st its stride right now. So again, just another uh, illustration of how the private sector is driving change and really implementing the things the governments are talking about, but the governments get their message get lost in the quagmire of corruption and non-transparency. Okay, so now, so we've talked about the generalities, let's say, of the situation. Now, what about the specifics? Like, who did you see speaking? Tell us some of the highlights of the conference. Mm -hmm. For me personally, one of the highlights was to hear from all the Southern African presidents, you know, very well spoken, eloquently spoken people getting their messages across. And uh, the messages were from, you know, South Africa's resource minister, Gwede Mentashe, the DRC prime minister, Jean-Michel Sama Lukonde, Zabin president, uh, Hakainde Ishilema, and of course, South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, and then Botswana president, Mokwezi Masisi, and, and more. And, and so what really encouraged me is their vision to create a free trade block in Southern Africa, comprising South Africa, mm -hmm. Zambia, uh, Botswana, and the DRC. Every, each one of these leaders mentioned that if they can get this block to work, it will really be the catalyst that will unlock Southern Africa to the world economy. Um, of course, there are some dark spots still. Zimbabwe needs to come to the table. Mozambique feels a little bit out there at the moment. Um, it seems like Angola is starting to make the right policy changes, coming back to the table, starting to increase investor confidence. The other highlight that I saw was, um, of course, uh, mining personality and financier Robert Friedland. He gave one of his you know, usual kind of flashbang talks where he just uh, leaves you in shock and awe about 
the dire need the world has for all the metals that his mines will produce, you know, copper for the EV era <laughs> and the zinc for, you know, advanced uh, building materials. And of course, the platinum group metals in South Africa from the Plat Reef project. It's amazing to hear him talk. Of course, we heard from uh, Rio Tinto, Anglo-American, about their renewables uh, initiatives, which is all very heartening. Uh, we heard from Exara Resources and uh, some of the legacy thermal coal miners in South Africa about the importance of moving forward with these new industries, but not leaving the average worker behind. Uh, you know, Adrian, in South Africa, the Mpumalanga province is home to massive coal fields, thermal coal specifically, which South Africa still needs to generate about three quarters, more than three quarters of its power. So it employs uh, more than 100, 200, 500,000 people at its peak. And so, so these people need to be brought back and by, by way of private sector initiatives, be educated to make a meaningful contribution into the new economy. They shouldn't be left behind. That was the key message that I heard as well. Okay, interesting. Now, as far as the geopolitical side of things, like you had an article, I was reading it this morning, there was a U.S. representative who was talking, kind of contrasting how the U.S. wants to, they want to race to the top, as they said, rather than mm. kind of alluding to China racing to the bottom in terms of ESG standards and this sort of thing. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, of course. So it was the U.S. Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy and Environment, Jose W. Fernandez. He was talking about how U.S. initiatives such as Power Africa and Prosper Africa programs were, in fact, delivering results since creation in 2013, you know, added about 6,000 megawatts of renewable energy transition and key places where there's really an Afro, you know, a power crunch, such as Namibia and Botswana. They will facilitate the procurement of another 5,000 megawatts soon. And these are all critically important to help uplift the African people and to partake in the meaningful new economy that's being created. The U.S. was also there to remind everybody that they are able to connect businesses, you know, U.S. businesses with African initiatives uh, where they're needed. And I think that's very important to establish that kind of collaboration and global synergy that Africa so direly needs. You know, I think in, in the past, you cannot sidestep the fact that Africa was exploited by almost everybody, you know, for the longest time. And very few resources got redirected back into Africa. And so the crux really is about creating shared wealth for everybody while transitioning, engaging in a just transition, you know, where it's equitable to the local people, where the ground beneath their feet, which belongs to them essentially, still helps to uplift everybody and not just the few owners or the few politically connected elites. That's the crux for me. Yeah, that seems to be the, you know, the, the new paradigm, I mean, which has been around for a few years now. I mean, it's the ESG paradigm, right? And Mark Bristow is kind of like the most, I, I think, the most vocal about it, or maybe the most uh, eloquent, or however you want to put it. Uh, I, I hear Mark Bristow talking about that uh, almost as much as anybody. 
So what does that mean then? Does that mean that they're there to partner? Because, I mean, if they're just flying in once a year to make a speech and then flying back, and are they basically saying the U.S. and our organizations, and maybe they're already involved in Africa? Mm. I don't know. Like, are they basically saying we're we're here to help and we're, we're committed? You know, uh, the U.S. is a little bit of a funny pickle to me at the moment. Uh, it's a bit ironic that they are creating a lot of news and waves with the government uh, talking about uh, the critical importance of generating critical metals on North American soil and establishing this vertically integrated you know, supply chain for EVs and the, in a, uh, the green energy economy. But they continue to block like critical mines, substantial critical mines. Just last week, we uh, wrote about um, Hat Bay Minerals, this uh, Rosemont copper project, also you know, getting the final red light. It, it won't go ahead. And it just adds to a myriad of other substantial projects able to feed into this critical, vertically inter integrated uh, critical metal supply chain. So the U.S., of course, is going to be very much interested in what Africa has to offer. I don't know. I wouldn't uh, go so far as to say why this is the case. You know, is a, a case of nimbyism that they don't want. No, I was, I was just thinking that. But they are actively <laughs> yeah. interested to fund and develop mines in Africa, for sure. Uh, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that they are there, just like China, to see where they can secure future rights, uh, mineral rights for this uh, said economy while they are, meanwhile, at home, just blocking projects left, right, and center. So, yeah. And finally, just on China, I assume they had a presence there. I mean, you hear about mm -hmm. China investment. What was their presence at the conference? Did you observe anything? Mm -hmm. I must say, from my perspective, it was a little bit more muted, but I did certainly see a lot of Chinese representatives walking the hallways, talking to companies. Um, of course, we know that they are intimately already invested in key projects such as these ones, Ivano Mines are, is driving forward. The Japanese I also saw there quite uh, in, in, a, in a strong contingent talking to companies and uh, seeing uh, how they are you know, able to add that meaningful value to Africa's opportunity here with the green economy. Of course, uh, Japan is also intimately invested in the platinum group metal projects uh, in South Africa's Bushveld igneous complex. So certainly, I saw much of them. They didn't make too many speeches on the main stages, but uh, they were there. Okay, excellent. And is there anything we've missed about the conference that you, you want to talk about that we haven't really discussed yet? No, Adrian, I, I feel like we've covered the, the basic points. For me, it's just uh, the at, at least the African leadership is talking a good game. You know, this thing about policy reform, it's critically important to create the safe space that fickle capital needs to flourish. And then I really like this vision of creating the regional infrastructure and free trade block that uh, with the eye on, you know, creating meaningful participation and economic upliftment in the green economy. And then lastly, it's all about not leaving the legacy industry workers behind. Just a final point on that is uh, one of the articles I enjoyed writing was talking to Sabania Stillwater and interviewing the mine unions in South Africa with connection to this uh, pay fiasco, you know, shall I call it, uh, you know, the gold, the company's gold miners have been on strike since February at three key gold mines, which account for almost a million ounces of gold a year. Then comes the announcement that the CEO, Neil Froneman, you know, got 300 million rand 
uh, that was equal to about 19 million US dollars, you know, just last year. And, um, uh, you know, you can understand that the workers on the ground feel a little bit left behind and, you know, feel a little bit uh, like they've been clapped in the face. You know, when when a CEO receives so much money and, you know, the company, you know, uh, doesn't want to come to the table, you know, with like a hundred dollar monthly increase to a mine worker's pay. It kind of leaves a little bit of a bitter taste in your mouth, to be honest. But then again, you have to look at the bigger picture. You know, Frenemann was uh, at the forefront of steering this company from a relatively ailing gold producer in South Africa to becoming a global force to be reckoned with, investing and branching out into the Stillwater EGM district in Montana, the US, and today being a geographically diversified miner that has enjoyed about 600% value uplift on in its equity. And, you know, so then you start understanding, you know, uh, it's a difficult thing to really, you know, but, you know, there's the, there are these contrasting issues that make it extremely difficult to really, you know, uh, for, for any foreign entity to really, you know, be, be truly successful, but to, you know, um, be have harmonious success, essentially. Yeah, I could just see the management thinking, hey, we built this company, just be glad you have a job. You know, and that's all exactly this what they told me. That's exactly what they told me during exactly. the COVID, yeah, they they it's the just like, open. Can, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, uh, final, final question briefly, and it's not related to the conference that much, other than were people worried about famine coming? You hear all these stories about uh, mm. food supply, mm. and it's kind of like this delayed thing. It, it's all abstract for everybody right now because everybody has food right now for the mm. most part. Was anybody talking about this? Yes, so we heard from Veracity Worldwide, the CEO, Stephen Fox, telling us, you know, how the war in how Russia's war in the Ukraine has already affected, turned the world's supply chains upside down. And this is causing inflation in many African nations. And so that by extent has direct impact on African mining operations. It can create obviously inflationary pressure on project execution. Also, it can bring political instability. Um, I think he mentioned that, for instance, there has already been unrest in places such as uh, in Cameroon, Ivory Coast and Senegal. Mm. Also, Niger and Mozambique, you know, are, are key places where, you know, fertilizer prices has spiked significantly. And so food instability becomes an issue. And by extent, again, it, it comes down to it will affect miners. Fascinating. Okay, so if people want to read more about, you did several stories, and they can find mm -hmm. them on the Northern Miner and Mining dot com. Yes, H Henry Lazenby, senior reporter with the Northern Miner, thank you for joining us on this week's Northern Miner podcast. Excellent, thank you very much for having me, Adrian. You know what the biggest surprise for me was in that interview? was this free trade block idea, this free trade zone in Africa. I have not heard anything about that, and that is super interesting. Again, another step in the right direction. I think these partnerships make a lot of sense as well in terms of just helping foster a political culture that maybe is a little more accountable. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed that show. Many exciting things coming up. Again, the Global Mining Symposium is next week. Sign up at events.northernminer.com. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.